You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, this is Doc G. And today we're going to earn and invest in conversations about your future so that you can make the right decisions today. I'm excited to have my brothers, Mark and Andrew, on the show. Take a listen. These are the facts. We all were born to a father who was a physician and a mother who was a chemist, but really she stayed home and took care of us. She was in the middle of getting her MBA, her degree in accounting when our father had died. We lived in a modest four bedroom home in a middle class suburb and we did fine. After our mom remarried, we moved to a little bit more affluent area, and we went to high school and college. None of us had to pay for our own college. And then we built our lives. You hear me talk all the time here on the Earn and Invest podcast about the financial lessons I learned as a child, the financial modeling my parents produced for me. But I wasn't the only one in the household. In fact, I was one of three siblings. And often I wonder if they took from our childhood what I did, specifically those financial lessons and what they meant to me. Did they have the same meaning for my siblings? Well, today we're going to discuss that here. And speaking of financial lessons of childhood, in 2020, I think many of us did a lot of self-reflection. For many, it was around personal growth, maybe career choices, personal finances, you name it. One topic that has really surfaced post-2020 is giving back. How can we make a difference in someone else's life? And is it possible to do good for others while actually making money? I'm really glad to share with you that our new partner, Equity and Help, literally, well, helps you do exactly that. Equity and Help grows your capital and while helping others shows how the simple act of investing can make a huge difference to American families. In addition to their 8 to 12% average return, which is a reward unto itself, Equity and Help makes it possible to help a family in need. Over 50% of Americans spend more than half their earnings on rent payments. So what Equity and Help has done is build an investment model to shrink this number. The mission of Equity and Help is to give families the realization of the American dream to own a home of their own when they might otherwise have not been able to. They have already helped almost 400 families find their home. 
you're interested in a philanthropic investment model with an average return of 8 to 12% and helping American families, you can speak to a so-called philanthropic investor at Equity and Help. Just visit equityandhelp.com slash podcast. Again, that's equityandhelp.com slash podcast. Andrew is a father, a husband, a recovering electrical engineer, and a technical program manager at Google. And Mark is a father, a husband, a doctor of chiropractic medicine, and an assistant professor of clinical anatomy at Rosalind Franklin University. And they are both my big brothers. Mark and Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Likewise, pleasure to be here. It is really cool to have you on. I've never really had a family member on the show, but as I thought of our childhood, I thought this was the perfect time to explore how siblings and different people who grew up in the same household learn financial lessons. Mark, I'm going to start with you. Just big picture wise, do you think we all had the same experience surrounding money growing up? You know, I'm inclined to say no. Now, I think our outlooks were probably somewhat shaped by our positions, you know, in the family when dad died. Being the oldest, I don't know that I was so much worried that the sky was falling as I was worried about what I was going to do with myself. You know, what was I going to become? And, And in my mind, like so many people, what I was going to become you know, what I was going to do for a living was going to define who I was, you know, so I'm, I'm curious as if you all felt the same way. Andrew, did you feel like we experienced the same thing, all three of us siblings, when it comes to money growing up? That's a really good question. I imagine we had kind of the same role models, right? Both both with, with mom and, and ultimately with, with our stepdad. But you know, we, we had different job experiences. We we kind of used our time differently. Kind of to Mark's point, you know, we we were we came in at a different birth order and and you know we're at a different age when dad died and so maybe had different reactions to that. I'm gonna I'm gonna take the old some nature, some nurture uh uh, uh way out. <laughs> Mark, you brought up this interesting question. It is true. We were very different ages when our father died. I was eight years old. You were 12 going on 13. As an eight-year-old, I didn't really think about money very much. In fact, I didn't think about financial well-being at all. Did that weigh more on your head? Was there a point where you're like, oh my God, dad died. How are we going to have enough money to survive? I think that that's that's a fair statement. I mean, you know, I felt like mom had it pretty well under control from from a financial standpoint it was more sort of navigating the non financial pieces that i was worried about you know what you know as as the oldest what was my role you know it changed dramatically from being an oldest son to being something else and i i remember spending a lot of time thinking about the non-financial aspects of the something else. You know, and I, I looking back, I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, I think a little bit of maybe financial stress isn't a bad thing. It's an interesting point because while finances matter, at some point I could see you as the eldest brother just worried about making sure things work the way they're supposed to, right? You've got two younger brothers, you're worried about your mom. 
finances wasn't something, Andrew, I thought much about. If you remember our childhood, especially when we lived in Evanston on Lawndale, did you think we were particularly wealthy compared to anyone else or the same? Like, how did you think we fit in with our neighborhood? I guess, you know, you don't, it's kind of like the fishbowl doesn't see the water, right? The fish in the fishbowl, I mean, right? The fish in the fishbowl doesn't see the water it's swimming in. So things felt kind of like, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't worry about our next meal, right? We we didn't we didn't sort of worry about you know how we were going to pay for for you know presents at holiday time. So we may not have lived extravagantly, but money wasn't a topic, I would say. Um, and I think that was generally true of the neighborhood. I mean, I, I think you know attitudes towards money are, are so highly personal, and I'm, I'm sure if we looked across that the neighbors, the different families had different approaches, but. Other than maybe some notion, some base notion of of frugality, right? Like, you know, we can get into stories about that, but some base notion of frugality. Money wasn't something I thought about a lot, positive or negative. Do you have any of those stories? Like, what what was frugality to you when we were a kid? Do you remember specifically saying there was this time when we didn't spend money on X? Yeah. Oh, lots of stories, right? I mean, so... I, I definitely like you remember in a way that kids do being obsessed with something you wanted, right? I, I have very early memories of, you know, we had when, when we had grown up, you probably remember we had one of those Atari consoles, right? This was even from when dad was alive, right? Like, and we, we would play Space Invaders on it. And at some point, the, the video games showed up in the nearby, you know, pizza or hot dog places, and we could play Donkey Kong for a quarter. And at some point, Coleco came out with a game console where you could play Donkey Kong at home. And this just the idea of this blew my <laughs> mind, right? You could play Donkey Kong without having to put a quarter in. But this thing was something like, I don't know, $150, some impossibly large sum of money when you're, let's say, 10 years old, right? And, and I, I distinctly remember mom saying, well, you can totally get that. You just have to save for it, right? <laughs> um and, Easily and, the best video game ever, by the yeah, way. <laughs> I, I, I'm totally the best game ever. And I never, you know, saved up enough money to do that. Or or maybe by the time I did, you know, you couldn't buy it or it was no longer of interest. I don't know. But I, I remember we got, you know, the guidance of if you want things, you have to save for them. I even remember, and you, you guys probably remember this, getting bank accounts, right? That was something that we all got as kids. I remember in those days, it was a printed register that you got and you would, we would walk to the bank, which was, I don't know, three, four blocks away. And, and, and we would fill out a form. Like we were doing this is before we could drive, right? We, we would fill out a form. We would hand it to the teller. You know, they would put the thing through a printer, which would update our balance. And then they would hand us the cash. Uh, I think we even did that before you could get bank cards. Mark, Andrew brings up an interesting point. I am famous for talking about our parents and the modeling they provided, right? Especially after mom remarried and they own properties and they own businesses. And what Andrew's talking about there is a different kind of learning. It's an experiential learning, right? You're given a task or you're tasked with trying to save up for something. It's a safe way to try and succeed or try and fail, the other way in which kids learn about money is didactic teaching. 
I'm wondering, Mark, do you ever remember our parents sitting us down and teaching us about money or compound interest or investing? Did we ever have such direct conversations? I want to I, I want to say, yeah, we, we probably had some sort of basic conversation about that, you know, along the lines of what Andrew brought up. I, I seem I seem to remember some basic I, I couldn't put my finger exactly on it, but I remember some basic conversation about saving and what a savings account was and what a checking account was. I remember mom teaching me how to balance a checkbook. I don't remember much beyond that, you know, sort of looking at it through the lens that I use currently. I wish perhaps there there would have been a little bit more of that discussion. You know, I, I labored under this impression that, you know, our job was to choose something we were going to do for a living. And if that thing was a good fit for us, everything would have been okay. And I'm not saying that it wasn't, but I, I'm not sure that that, I'm not sure that model is, is absolute. You know, I, I, who, you know, who you are as a person is not equivalent to what you do for a living. And there might have been some benefit in choosing something that provided, you know, a real stable living or the opportunity to save a whole lot of money that may not have been sort of the perfect thing. It might've been something that we just didn't, you know, hate. And then whoever you were going to become was something you did when you weren't working, you know? And so I I sort of look at, and I bring that up because I look at my potential over my life to this point to have put money away maybe there were some different choices I could have made that would have allowed me to put away more because of, of perhaps a greater earning potential looking back on it. Andrew, it's an interesting question. I mean, our role models, if we look at them, our mother, our father, and then our stepfather were three people who loved their jobs. So when we look at what a job is supposed to do, how it's supposed to function, I don't think in any of us, the idea was a job is something you do to make money so you can do other things. Right. And I know that both Mark and I came to a point in our career where we're like, okay, we like our jobs, but we're much more interested in having the money to do other things now than necessarily doing the nine to five job. Do you remember that kind of conversation, Andrew? I don't think it was ever really posed to us that, okay, you can work, make money, and that money will help you do other things as opposed to you should work kind of to fulfill your purpose? It's a pretty good question. I mean, I think, you know, there was this base awareness of money and that it was something to pay attention to, right? Like we talked, I remember having kind of a point in the road as a kid where I was interested in both music and technology, right? And, you know, one of those things was more likely to to lead me to, um, you know, I I remember that be able to support myself. Right. And, and, you know, mom in her in her way, it was kind of like, yeah, you might want to do the technology thing. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you know, was I I destined to be a musical genius? No, I don't think so. so. And, And to her credit. I think she she if she had recognized that musical genius in me, she would have supported it. But I I think we we were probably, you know, got signals indirectly. Right. Like, in other words, yeah, you know, a career in technology at a, at a top name, you know, you know, started off with an education at a top name university. 
might be a good thing, right? Those were things she supported, <laughs> right? But as far as like, what is a job for? I don't think we ever got to those kind of depths as teenagers with her. I, I mean, you know, these are these are things we can reflect on as men of a certain age, right? <laughs> we can, we can, very first world. We can we can we can talk fun. about the deep meanings, but uh, yeah, it, I, I think there was a real practical bent to to, to the guidance we got. You know, you bring up an inter- Andrew. You bring up an interesting point. You know, you said what what is what is a job for? You know, and the the emphasis was sort of on the earning potential as opposed to the saving potential. You know, we didn't have a lot of a lot of conversations about hey, you know, if if you're really good at saving, there's some freedom in that to then go do sort of other things that aren't necessarily career related. You know, and that's that's sure. something that that I definitely came to much later. You know, after sort of struggling with, uh, you know, trying to develop emotional capital, right? Here's here's who I am, and now I feel good about that. Like I I did that thing that I was supposed to go do. Yeah, you know, but it it, it didn't sort of that conversation didn't start off the other way. Where hey, you know, you 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 may end up sort of getting a middle income job, but if you're really good at saving, if you're really thoughtful about it, you may buy yourself the opportunity to later on go then do some of these other things that you might want to do. Right. So that that was probably missing, not to, yeah. not to judge. Sure. I mean, this, the strange thing for me in all this was when I first found my way onto a computer and where we lived in the Midwest, there wasn't this notion that that was job preparation, right? In other words, I couldn't not spend time on a computer. Like this was, this was fun. I didn't know that that would be a career later. So when I got to college, I I learned that there was a computer science major, and I thought, well, that's not a major. That's that's a hobby, right? <laughs> I'm like, that's not something people. Apparently, it is something people major in, and you know. But but I took those classes for fun, and I took the electrical sorry the electrical engineering classes because I thought that that's what the job would actually be, you know. And then it only took me another, I don't know, seven years of grad school to realize that I could actually write code for a living, <laughs> but. But but you know all that said, I want to at least also be honest in that, as much as I enjoy technology and writing code, and how I would do that anyway, like even if you didn't pay me to do it, jobs are not that black and white, right? You've got to deal with people, you've got to commute, you, you know, there are all these things about it. You you have to work in a company whose priorities might not be the same as yours, and this idea that well, just because you have fun doing a thing, and it turns out that that thing through, you know, just sheer luck becomes your job, still doesn't mean that the job is going to be all sunshine and roses, right? I mean, that's that's the caveat on all of this. Mark, I want to come back to one of your points. One thing that became clear to me, especially after we moved to Winneka, which was the more affluent area, is that we didn't actually spend money like a lot of my peers who went to my high school did it became more clear to me as time went on that our parents actually saved about 50% of their income, but we never really talked about that openly. Like our parents were incredibly frugal when you look at how much money they made, but we didn't have conversations like you should save this amount 
of your income every year. Yeah. You know, I, I think it was sort of an, an unwritten, an unwritten understanding there that, that we would always have what we needed. Right. So I think you guys probably agree that there wasn't too much that we needed when we were kids that we didn't have, you know, and, and, and beyond that, thinking about what we wanted versus savings. I just, I don't think that ever came up. I mean, I, I have one distinct memory of something that I wanted badly, strangely as a kid that I didn't get. And that's just, that's about it. There was this overcoat from, from a store called Mr. Eddie's <laughs> that, that I wanted badly and I didn't have the money for it. And I, 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 you know, pushed mom a little bit and, and grandma Sophie was around at that point. And, you know, she thought I was nuts. What in the world do you need a, as a, as a high school kid, what do you need a, an $800 or whatever it was, $750 overcoat. You know, I, that sticks in my mind. It's like the only thing that I ever wanted that I didn't get. Right. Eventually I went and bought it when I had saved up enough money, but I don't, I don't, you're right. I don't think there was this sort of in-depth conversation about what savings could do for you. You know, I, I've always had a little bit of buyer's remorse, some of the small stuff. But in my mind, if it's something you need, then then there's no guilt over, you know, I need a car. Okay. I need a I need a house. I need to pay a mortgage. Those I need I need clothes for work. Never any guilt about that stuff. But you know, the stuff that you didn't need, that I guess that's where the the conversation, do you really need that thing? Or potentially, could that be more powerful as money saved? And I, I don't remember a conversation about sort of the power of amassing savings. Yeah. So just going back to another memory that that triggered, I, I definitely didn't learn about compounding in, until, you know, whatever version of, you know, math where, where we learn about growth. I can't even remember what year it was, but I was always, you know, kind of a math head. And, and so that's really where we picked, I, I distinctly remember that unit where you learned about things like bacterial growth and, and compounding interest and, you know, those sort and viral spread, right? Like, and it all comes down to the same set of, you know, the same mathematical formulas. And that must've been, that must've been where I learned about compounding as opposed to like mom sitting down with us and, and, and kind of walking us through that. You know, I struggle with this idea because in learning about personal finance, I truly believe that the way kids actually mostly learn is through modeling. So they see their parents do the right thing and learn it from there. And I also think they really learn a lot through experiential learning. The things like having a monthly or yearly allowance and then having to allocate that allowance so they don't run out of money. I'm not a big fan of didactic teaching. On the other hand, I will tell you that I tell my kids all the time, if you just save enough money between the ages of 20 and 30, you're going to be set for life. And the reason is because I've kind of come to terms with what compounding is. And that's one of those things, like, I feel like you have to directly tell your children, this is what it is. The sooner you take advantage of it, the better. And that's when it comes to savings and compounding. We were lucky enough to grow up in a family that was fairly business oriented, our mother was an accountant and eventually owned her own business. Our stepfather was a CEO of a major company and had side businesses. Mark, do you remember thinking about business when you were younger and kind of seeing what your parents were doing and 
learning about running businesses? Was this something you aspired to when you were younger? Probably not. I think that the, the first recollection that I, I probably had of, of what you just described was when I opened my own business, when I opened my own practice, you know, I didn't sort of have much hesitation about it because it seemed something that I was comfortable with, right? You, you, you open a business, you plan carefully, you go slowly, you don't overspend, you know, you, you provide a, a product or a service and you find your market and you push forward. And so I, I never, hesitated. And maybe I didn't hesitate in starting my own business because I had examples that seemed pretty normal where I know, you know, that can be, it can be daunting for some people to start a business. That's a pretty major obstacle for some people. And for me, I I don't, I didn't really hesitate. Opening a business wasn't something that gave me much concern. And maybe that's because I saw some successful examples of that in the family. Yeah, I echo that point. Like, so I don't remember ever sitting down and talking to our parents specifically about this is how you open a business. Although there's those nights at the dinner table, throwing back and forth business ideas, even in high school, I remember that very clearly. Andrew, what about real estate? I think I'm the only one of us siblings who has spent a lot of time thinking about real estate, but our parents were landlords. I mean, at some point they owned somewhere between eight and 10 properties. Did any of that rub off on you and and why or why not? Did it rub off on me? I guess it left me with a notion of, you know, hey, that's a thing a person can do. Like, in other words, you know, at one point in my life renting, I, I kind of realized there was somebody on the other side of those checks. And, you know, that the, I, I didn't quite put together capital flows and down payments and like none of that really occurred to me till much later, maybe in the last five years. <laughs> Right. Up until then, it just was off the table, you know, for me, just the, the reality of, of of having the capital or interest to do something like that just wasn't there. Not really, I would say, unless you count, yeah, the last few years. But certainly I wasn't in my 20s, 30s or even most of my 40s thinking about about that as something I would do. I sort of went, yeah, that was nice for them. Yeah, <laughs> I think I might have walked away with an enduring sense that I didn't want to rip up any more carpets or peel any more wallpaper. <laughs> I, I, it never occurred to me, and, and certainly our stepdad never gave us the idea that you could actually hire people to do that stuff. <laughs> no, so of course I think, not. <laughs> I think that's what I walked, you know, unfortunately, I walked away with thinking that, you know, if you're going to own real estate, you're going to end up doing a lot of the work yourself. You know, it's an interesting point. As I listen to our conversation, I realize our parents really gave us everything we needed to know by far. But all three of us, in a sense, really stuck to more subsistence and life building up until more of our 40s. And then at our 40s, we started saying, okay, let's look at business building. Let's think about real estate. Let's look at our careers and maybe what we'll do after our careers. Andrew, I'm wondering how this plays into how you talk to your own children about about their future. Sure. So let me let me go back. I mean, obviously, like, you know, we, we, we haven't lived together in the same house for a long, long time. Right. I have definitely built small businesses along the way ever since I went to college. Right. They, they were never my main job and you may not have seen them, but I, I've definitely done this. Right. I mean, so. Uh, and again, some of this may have come from the modeling that we got from our from our folks, 
right? But I, I still remember getting to college and being involved with a fraternity where you're always raising money. And I don't remember at some point I went to the Home Depot, you know, or it had a different name in the town where I went to college, but I went to their version of the Home Depot and I saw that they had these four feet by eight feet sheets of material. They were called shower wall or something. But I kind of realized intuitively that, oh, this is the same stuff that makes up the dry erase boards that everybody hangs on the doors of their college dorm rooms, right? Like for their friends to leave them notes. I could, as a fundraiser for the for the fraternity, I could go buy one of those. And, you know, we were always, I was always handy. I think you guys were too. We had a workshop in the basement f- from our dad, right? And I thought I could just buy one of those four by eight things. I can cut it up. And I like did the, the math of like, okay, if it's one foot by two feet, I'm going to get this many. And then I can buy a, a marker and I can turn around and sell that. And like, you know, at twice the cost of the materials or something like that, right? And so I did this and we raised money. And then we, we did that like three or four times throughout college, you know, some version of that. We went to Ikea and we bought some baskets and we bought some things and put them in the baskets. And then we sold that for more. But then I've done it at other times in my life as well. We don't have to go into all the details, but these were never a living. But I certainly, you know, had had done projects that had made a few hundred dollars here or in, in one case, like thousands of dollars, you know, as an adult. But I guess they never really necessarily made it onto your all's radar because that wasn't what I what my job was, right? I'm glad you were more wholesome about it because in my fraternity days, we bought beer and then charged <laughs> people to drink it, and that's how we raised money. And getting and getting two x for beer was definitely not a problem. Yeah, uh, yeah so I appreciate like... the wholesome nature of what you were doing and how you spent your college <laughs> days versus how I spent mine. I will say, I mean, coming back to the question, you know, how do I talk about it with the kids? Gosh. We've, we've talked about stuff like this a few times. I mean, I try to give them a sense, not so much about, you know, sort of multiplying dollars as, you know, do something that you enjoy, right? Do something that's going to give you a chance to meet your needs, right? If you, you know, what's the definition of wealth, right? You take what your expenses are and make sure that your earnings are more than that. And you can control hopefully one or both. <laughs> um, but I also, but I also tell them like, this kind of like the, the the sort of grim reality, which is the world doesn't really owe you anything, right? So you, you have to go out and make your own, go go out and, and make your own reality. Mark, answer the same question. You know, when you talk to your daughter about her financial well-being, do you think you do it differently than our parents did with us? And if so, how? I Yeah, I mean, I think I have the luxury of being able to do that, right? Because I, I am, you know, we are all fortunate enough to be in a position where we can, you know, so that's on the shoulders of giants, as it were, you know, and, and you know, my approach has been to try to reverse engineer this thing and, and try to get my daughter to imagine, you know, and it's hard. It, it would have been hard for us as teenagers to imagine the life that we wanted and then, and then work backwards and try to figure out what you can do to get there without sort of selling your soul. Right. And so I, I, I think that I, I've tried to instill in her the idea that you are not what you do for a living, you know, and so if you can find something that you get satisfaction out of, right, that you can do for a living, try to try to try to imagine what it's going to take for you to have, you know, what you want. And then, you know, don't forget to develop the other parts of your personality. And, you know, I'm fortunate and mine, mine enjoys art. 
and she's got other interests. And so I think those, she, she gets a lot of joy out of those and is still able to sort of imagine what she can do, what she can do for a living to, to make her the kind of money that she's going to need for the life she envisions for herself. So I, I've, I've looked at it sort of in the reverse of what we were told. In the first half of the show, Andrew, Mark, and I talk about the financial modeling we receive from our parents. After the break, we discuss the financial independence movement. But first... This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you interested in financial independence? Well, when I want to learn about the latest and greatest going on in the movement, I go to Phiology.com. That's F-I-O-L-O-G-Y.com. My friend David Boyer there has posted his 52 Phiology lessons. You can go through each of them once a week. He also has a free downloadable Phiology workbook. It's really the place to go if you're interested in knowing what's going on in financial independence, if you're looking to introduce someone to the movement, or stay up to date with what's happening today. There are all sorts of resources there, including a link to different podcasts, as well as financial independence coaches. I really suggest you check them out, phiology.com. That's F-I-O-L-O-G-Y dot com. Yeah, it's interesting because I look back at what I believe our parents provided us, and I feel like they provided us so much, right? I feel like financially they provided us amazing wealth to live our lives, to have what we needed. And I felt like they were amazing role models, right, between their businesses and their savings and their intelligence behind their money moves. I'm very thankful for that. I've talked to especially our mom in particular about this idea that maybe being a physician is not something that really fills my cup anymore. And so we've talked a lot about what financial independence means and even this idea of retiring early. And she kind of looked at me like that was never even a consideration for us, right? Especially for them, because when mom and our stepdad got married, we got a stepbrother and a stepsister. So we had five siblings all together. They were worried about college educations. This idea of stepping out of the workplace early just really was never on their mind. So Andrew, I want to start with you. You know, I've been talking a lot about financial independence. I've been part of this movement of people who step away from work early how does that sound to you? Does that sound like a completely foreign concept or is that something you had encountered before? 
I would point out, actually, we did have one model in our stepdad's dad, our step-grandfather, who was famous in the family for having stepped away from work at 55, right? I think it was something like that. And, you know, playing the stock market and living up the life, living up the artistic life and healing with crystals and stuff. But yeah, I've thought about this a lot, right? I have a few thoughts. One of them is I can't imagine not having things to keep me busy. I think about our our grandma, right, on our mom's side, who, you know, worked until she couldn't work, more or less, right? She was working into her 80s. I actually think there's a pretty deep, and actually recent kind of political events have, have kind of reminded me of this with the pandemic and, you know, things going on in Portland. But I actually believe that we have a deep need to be engaged in something, preferably something meaningful. We don't have a deep need to accumulate money, I don't I don't think. I mean, like at least uh, spiritually, right? But I think we do have a deep need to be engaged in meaningful work. And the only question is just how you choose what to work on and how you are able to kind of support that lifestyle, whether it was because of previous savings that are now just keeping you covered or because what you're doing uh, is actually resulting in money flows. And uh, this, this is just my own personal take on this stuff. But I actually kind of believe if you're doing something useful, then there ought to be money flow around it. I, I, in some ways, I think this idea of, you know, there are lots of famous stories in tech about people who get wildly wealthy at a young age and quote unquote retire and go crazy after two or three years and come back. It happens all the time. And uh, I kind of subscribe to that. I can't imagine. I can imagine stepping away from my current job. I can't imagine not doing things that are meaningful and even meaningful to the point that there would be some kind of money flow around them. Yeah. I have two thoughts that come from what you just said. One is I totally agree. I think when you're engaged in something that's very purposeful and very meaningful to you, eventually money comes your way. Now it may not be tons of money, but I think we tend to generate money when we get deeply involved in something. Let me turn the question, Andrew, on you a different way. If money was not an issue, what would you be doing today? Definitely writing code, which is something I do. Definitely engaging with other people, also something I do. But, you know, I kind of have to wave my hands a little bit, right? Like, while I certainly, you know, I'm not going to retire to a mansion anywhere, I certainly have lots of choices. And I, I still, like, I spent a good chunk of my spare time this weekend writing code just for fun. So, I mean, I guess, I guess just so that I don't completely blow off the answer, I imagine I would be building software of one sort or another, maybe a little more and trying to, a big part of the job that I do is to coordinate groups of people doing things. There's a lot of communication. There's a lot of influence. There's sort of a lot of listening, which I'm also, you know, happy to do, but you know, in my actual job function, there actually isn't a lot of building. I'd probably be building more. So Mark, Andrew does bring up an interesting point. Our step-grandfather was probably what I would now call an early fire, financial independence retire early practitioner. He fulfilled all the criteria perfectly. He made a lump sum of money, invested it and used the stock market did something called geo-arbitrage, moved to Santa Fe, which at that time was an incredibly low cost of living. This was a guy who would turn the thermostat down in his house and lived incredibly frugally, but that allowed him to live 40 plus years in retirement. 
Mark, you've gone a little more down the rabbit hole with me. You came with me to a Camp Fi meeting, uh, Camp Financial Independence in Minnesota. How did this movement rub you, especially when I started talking about it in depth? Is it something that appeals to you? Yeah, a- a- absolutely. I, it, intuitively, it makes sense to me. You know, and there's, there's part of me that wishes I would have understood some of this a little bit sooner. I mean, I've always been a saver by one vehicle or another right out of college. But I, I think I sort of subscribed to this idea. And I remember when we bought our first house, there was this sort of myth that the house that you get, the house that you buy should be maybe a little bit more expensive than, than what you can afford. And you'll therefore be stimulated to sort of grow into it, you know, to stretch the, the, the idea of stretching into it. And I look at that and I'm like, why did I buy that? <laughs> Why didn't I come back with, you know, maybe I want to buy something that's a little bit less expensive, you know, and, and take the take the the stretching and, and put that away. And so, you know, it, it, our, our step grandfather's definitely in some ways a hero of mine. I dig what he did. You know, I, I think he had the courage uh, to do something few other people were doing. Going a little bit down the rabbit hole with this stuff is fine for me. It makes it makes good intuitive sense, and I also think that you can come at this thing at any age. You know these these lessons perhaps are are best leveraged when you're younger, but you really can come at that idea at any point in time. So yeah, no, not strange to me at all. Andrew, looking back at how you managed your finances through your 20s and 30s and now in your 40s, would you do it any different knowing what you do know now? Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. I mean, just to just to be transparent, right, I spent my 20s in graduate school and there was no money, right? <laughs> so, you know, there is always that question of would you go back and not spend your 20s in graduate school? I loved my 20s in graduate school. I loved it. I, you know, was doing really interesting work. I was setting my own direction to a large degree. You know, I was even getting a little bit of money because I was a, a graduate student in, in engineering, which which generally speaking, there were grants for and federal support for. So I wasn't incurring debt, you know, and the downside was, yeah, I wasn't putting money away to start compounding at a really early age. But no, I, I I don't know. You know, maybe this is just coming from a point of of not being under the gun financially, but I kind of have come around to the view that those things don't really matter and that the experiences are actually what's most important. And the fact that I was able to have those experiences in my 20s, I'm grateful for. Yeah, I would say if I look back at my financial trajectory, one of the things that I might have definitely done different is I think I would have taken more time maybe explored more about what I really loved and didn't like about my job and not been in such a rush to be successful, but instead be in a rush to figure out what gave me the most sense of meaning, realizing that maybe it would be fine if I made a little less money doing it that way, but then my career trajectory would be longer because I would have enjoyed myself more. Mark, if you could go back in a time machine, back to your early 20s, what do you think you would have done differently? Yeah, I'm going to give Andrew some credit here. I don't know what the context of this conversation was many years ago, and maybe we were talking about his job, and he was talking about finding interesting problems to solve. Andrew, I don't know 
if you remember that. And and I, I think what I might have done differently is given myself some time to find interesting problems to solve, trying to figure out what, you know, skills I might have been able to apply to those problems. You know, so so, you know, you'd ask the question, what what would you be doing if you weren't working or you didn't have to work? And I think I would answer that generally by saying just that I'd I'd try to go out and find some interesting problems to solve based on the skill set that I now have. Right. And, and I agree that there ought to be money that flows around that. If you're solving, if you're solving problems, if you're filling a need, you ought to have money that flows around that. And the, the luxury in that is not having to worry about getting your bills paid while you're trying to do that. Yeah. And just, just to kind of, build on that. I mean, I don't want to take away from this idea that you can't, you can, you can do very, very meaningful work in things that are not, let's say commercial. But there, so, so when I say money, I mean it more figuratively than literally, if you're doing work that's meaningful and that's helping someone, I think you will hopefully have a community around you that recognizes that and sees to it that you're taken care of as well. How very Andrew Yang of you. <laughs> I've noticed that none of us said, I wish I had made more money. That was not the response that any of us had. So I want to kind of end the conversation, Andrew, where I began it. At the beginning of this episode, I kind of asked, did we have the same financial upbringing? And I want to bring that back after this conversation. Do you feel like we pretty much got the same financial education? Did it affect us the same way? I do. I just, yeah, I think we, I think we, again, we had the same role models. But obviously, we had different environments and different trajectories. I can say that, you know, I there was probably a time, oh, there was definitely a time when I thought, hey, I'm going to, for example, you know, leave academia and join an internet startup because I'm going to make millions of dollars. And, you know, three startups later and, you know, <laughs> not, not so much. So there was there was a time where that stuff was super important to me. But it was also true, like, and imagine if you have people in the audience that are in Silicon Valley, you know, the thing I tell people is like, whenever you come out here, you know, you're, you're not going to be the one that, you know, makes a bajillion dollars starting Facebook, right? Like, not only that, you're going to know those people, right? But like, just from a pure probability standpoint, the likelihood that it's going to be used very, very low, but you're absolutely going to know those people, right? And I certainly have known people who, who have, who have been worth millions and in one case, at least a billion dollars, right? Like you're, you're going to know them and you've, you've got to just be okay with that if you're going to come here and do this stuff. And I, I guess I did, when I got out here, I'd already had one sort of failed startup experience and it was kind of like, yeah, it's the journey. Like, you know, most of us are not going to get to that, to that place, but guess what? You know, we'll, we'll be just as happy, you know, or maybe more so depending on the temperament of the person. Mark, I'd ask you the same question, and and we haven't talked about this much, but I would note that I especially had a little bit of a different upbringing than you because we lived in one place, and then mom remarried, and then we moved to another place. The second place was more affluent, which means at least my high school experience was surrounded by people who had lots of money, whose parents were starting the companies and becoming millionaires and billionaires, whereas in our first neighborhood, it was more the school of life as opposed to the business school that I went to. Do you think my and your specifically financial upbringing was different, maybe based on some of those issues? You know, after uh, after hearing you guys talk, it seems like the fundamentals 
we're probably the same. You know, it, 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 we're all fortunate that we've had good quality of life and we've essentially enjoyed what we've done. But, you know, I, I, my high school friends all had nothing. None of them had anything. And I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know if you remember uh, my high school car it was a, a Buick estate wagon. <laughs> and, to, and I mean, an older one. And to, to my friends, that might as well have been a Rolls Royce, mm-hmm. you know. And so I, I, I think that we, to me, it felt like we were, you know, pretty well off. But I would imagine, you know, based on what Andrew was talking about and what you were saying, growing up around uh, you know, people who were the children of people who were successful, it probably didn't, probably didn't feel like much in comparison to what some of those folks had. But my early experience, for better or for worse, is, you know, that, that Buick Estate Wagon was a Rolls. And we were in pretty good shape. But yeah, I, I would, to circle back to your question, it, it sounds like the fundamentals for all three of us were the same. And, and based on our experiences, we just took slightly different trajectories to ultimately sort of end up in the same place, you know, which is, which is not a measure of, of money in the bank or money invested, but of a general sense that, you know, hey, I've got some choices, right? I, I've made some decisions that have landed me in a place where I've got choices. You know, if, if, I, if I do, you know, want to stop working at some point or find different work, that's an option where, you know, you're not saying to yourself, I need to work until I'm in my 70s if I'm going to make enough money to retire. So, I, 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 yeah, I, I think on the whole, it's been roughly the same experience. What I take from this conversation, which is interesting, is yes, I think we did have the same experience. And maybe what really shines through, I think, in our financial upbringing is the fact that we all had the luxury of not really worrying about money when we were kids. So we were never really hungry to start that big business or to make millions of dollars. On the other hand, we benefited from having these amazing financial role models, these people who went out there, who controlled their environments, who made a lot of money, who saved money, and who ultimately were able to live the lives they wanted. I think it does a lot to explain why we kind of are where we are today. We didn't have the pressure in our 20s to make huge amounts of money. And therefore, without that pressure, we were able to kind of explore who we are and what we wanted out of life. It's been great having you guys on the podcast It certainly has enlightened me because I know I've pulled out certain financial lessons that I feel like I learned during childhood and that now I try to bestow on my children in such a way that isn't a hassle or pain, but that kind of gives them that leg up that I feel we got. And it's nice to know that our childhood came through the same lens and maybe maybe the result is we've all got to similar places because of it. Thank you guys for coming on. This has been a blast. Mark and Andrew, my big brothers, thanks a lot for being here. This is the Earn and Invest podcast. And that's a wrap. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this conversation with my brothers, Mark and Andrew. If you've heard me tell before the parable of the three brothers, I really think it comes from my upbringing. To recap, 
There's a story I often tell about three brothers who are taking their own individual paths in life. The eldest is kind of like what I thought I was growing up. They're not a big fan of that path, so they rush through it trying to get done as quickly as possible to get to the goal, to get to the end so they can enjoy life. The middle brother doesn't love his path like the eldest, but is not as anxious to finish and so takes a lot of side trips, breaks, moments in between and realizes that they will get to the end of the path slower than the eldest brother. And finally, the youngest brother meanders from moment to moment, enjoys the path, takes time to notice every crack in the sidewalk, every tree, every bird flying by, and does something funny. When the youngest brother gets to the end of the road, they turn around and start to go back. In the other direction. I use the parable of the three brothers to talk about the different ways we look at career and maybe even life. It's funny, I used to think of myself as the youngest brother, which I am actually in my family structure. I'm the youngest of the three of us because I had a passion for medicine and my dream was to be a doctor. But as I look back now and I've switched careers, I actually see myself more as the eldest brother. I did something called front-loading the sacrifice. I pushed and pushed and pushed to move up in my career, make money so that I could finish quickly. When I look at my siblings, my brother Andrew really is more like the youngest brother. He went for the passion play. He loves his job. He loves coding. So for him, getting to the end of the path was not nearly as important. When he gets there, he'll probably turn around and walk back the other way and continue doing the things he likes to do. And then my eldest brother, Mark, is actually more like the middle brother in the parable who kind of like me, has front-loaded the sacrifice and has worked to quickly get through his path. On the other hand, he's taken more breaks, more moments to rest and relax in between. He wasn't as aggressive as I was to getting to this place of either financial security or at the end of his career. Three paths for three brothers. I wrote this parable a long time ago, and in some ways it has a lot to do with my own family structure. When we finished the podcast, Mark, Andrew, and I continued to talk. So enjoy the after show. This is what we talked about after we stopped the formal podcast, and we're just chatting at the end. Enjoy. Awesome. That was fun. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I think, it, you know, I always, I never know where the conversation is going to end. And um, it ended in a place that I guess makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. No doubt. Did uh, we cover all the ground you wanted to cover? Yeah, yeah. I, I just wanted to have a good, interesting conversation. But yes, I mean, uh, I definitely had some questions I wanted to put out there and we definitely covered them. And I think, um, yeah, I think it's it's an interesting, compelling story. And, it, it, you know, for me, I know it's very introspective, but for me, it certainly helps me understand where we are you know where i am where we are um what our parents you, taught I us mean, I, th I think the thing the thing that i feel is the most different from when i was younger is and maybe there's just a phase of life thing but i just am generally not interested in stuff 
right? Like when I was a kid, it's like, you know, you gotta, you need money because you need money. You gotta get money if you want to get stuff, right? Like, I find stuff. I find getting rid of stuff one of great, life's greatest pleasures. Oh yeah. Oh my god, yeah. I I I I, I don't know. Do you watch American Pickers ever? No, <laughs> yes. I've, I've watched that. Yeah. Andrew, you gotta you gotta watch it. Okay. Because, so these two guys from Iowa, they travel around the country looking for rusty gold and people's stuff. Yeah. You know, and the amount of stuff that people accumulate for them to pick through. Yeah. It's mind boggling. I don't know if you guys heard this. I was listening to NPR science and we've finally gotten to the point where the, yeah, the biomass versus the biomass is outweighed by the amount of stuff that we've created. And there is no greater joy for me than getting rid of stuff. Yeah. I don't even know, you know, what, every year at this time, it's always the question of what would you like for the holidays? I don't know. Socks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really good, right. Really good. Warm. Right. Socks. I, yeah. I'm no fun to buy for because I don't. It's like they say it's experiences over things, man. Yeah. Function over form, right? You like things that work for you that make your life easier, but you're not into the baubles anymore. Right. Yeah. I, I was, it wasn't dinner last night. It was the night before. Uh, it was Saturday night. Uh, Melissa and Kyle and I had sort of gone out shopping to try to spend some gift cards, you know, which is right. Years, right. years, years worth of gift cards, right? Just and and uh, we got carry out from a gift card on the way home from a place called Serenello's. That you sounds know, familiar. Yeah. yeah, it's on it's on uh, it's on uh, Milwaukee, just south of Lake Cook Road. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm looking at it and it's a hundred dollars worth of food and it's really not that much. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it's a piece of fish, a couple pieces of chicken, you know, some, 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 uh, uh, what else did we get? A a pizza and a salad. Right. And I'm looking at this and I'm going, what a luxury. Oh yeah. This is how, how lucky am I that we get to sit here in our bubble, you know, and, yeah. and a hundred dollars worth of food for most people is like a, a week or a month. Yeah. Right. And this is, this is like just, just beyond one meal, just because yeah, we yeah, have yeah. the gift card for it. And I'm thinking, how lucky are we that we're sitting in our nice warm house, you know, with, with, with candles burning and eating some really good food and enjoying each other's company. And, and not really having to worry about what we just spent for real. And that's, I think that's in the end, that's the, the, what our folks got us was the ability to get to that place. You know, you'd call it first world problems if you want, but, but the ability to have that kind of peace, if that makes any sense. I mean, it's, it was just a gift. Oh, it totally does. I mean, it's gratitude, right? I mean, right. you know, um, you can you can find gratitude even if your life situation is a lot worse because there's always someone whose life situation is a little worse than theirs, right? Yeah, this, right. This is stoicism, by the way, right? If you ever looked into being a stoic, um, uh, not a fan. <laughs> <laughs> it's over, being stoic is overrated. No, it's actually underrated, but that's a whole other story. Um, I guess it depends on who you run with. Yeah, yeah, but. Uh, I totally can relate to your, to your gratitude there. 
yeah, that's that's quite a luxury, right? I mean, especially with things going on with the pandemic and people losing their jobs. I mean, I think it might be fun sometime to make an argument on your show anywhere, really, that actually having money is the source of unhappiness, right? Well, so it's it's an interesting idea, right? So money, so the the metaphor that works best is money is like oxygen. If you don't have enough oxygen, it's the only thing you can think about. But once you have enough oxygen, getting more doesn't do you much. So well, the key, like I said, yeah. arguably it makes it worse. Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, look, look at poor Tony Shea. I mean, I don't know what yeah. the circumstances surrounding his death were, but but by all measure, yeah, that guy was still and a raging, hit him, the a raging success. Him. Yeah. Uh, he was I, he was such an outbound personality and depended so much on other people for his happiness that I think the pandemic is really what killed him at the end of the day. Ugh. I mean, you know, the, the details of how he died is one thing, but like re- there was a good Forbes write up of this uh, uh, about his last days. And he was already on a really bad track when he died. Oh, that's so sad to me. That was like when Anthony Bourdain died. Yeah. Killed yeah. himself. Yeah. I, I, you know, those are people that seem to me, and it wasn't about the money so much. It was, it seemed like they had sort of unlocked the secret to success, right? Those are those are two people in my mind that were doing things that made them happy. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if what Tony was doing made him happy. Like, well, he seemed to thrive on it. It was an expression of who he was, but he also may have just been unhappy. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, that's that's certainly what what you know people say. I mean, it, it would seem to me, you know, traveling around the world and meeting all of these phenomenally interesting people. Yeah. But but maybe he was just trying to exercise his demons. Yeah. yeah. I was so sad when, when he, he we all he got so many of us to love him. And then, yeah. you know, that I've been thinking about that a lot. It's always struck me. And this struck me when Kobe, 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 Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not a sports guy. Um, But I, I, you know, there was this outpouring of grief, you know, naturally and as there should have been. But it, it struck it strikes me as so strange that we can feel pain and grief. Like, what does it mean to know someone as a celebrity or as a podcaster for that matter, right? Like you actually do form a relationship with them in a way. Um, and so when they die, you feel a certain kind of pain, right? Which strikes me as the strangest, strangest thing. Um, it's not like, do you know what I mean? And th- th- this yeah. has nothing to do with their value as a person, right? Yeah. It's, it's more about like, we have this instinct that was evolved for small communities. Um, uh, uh, but in this current age, uh, uh, works you know, can work in this very, very different long distance way that is very, I don't know, it strikes me as odd. Well, I I mean, I think each of us may have seen something within, you know, Tony Mordain, for instance, that you identified with, you know, whether, whether it was his sarcasm or his pain or, or, you know, his, his love of food, it was easy to find something in there. So, you know, no, I I didn't know him, right? We didn't know him, but in a way, you did, oh, right? Yeah. In the way that you you would know any anybody, right? Oh, there. and and to be clear, like when I listen to podcasts or read blogs, I feel like I know those people in a certain right. way. Yeah, right. Totally. You know, if you read Tony Shea's book, right? You know, you, you felt like there was something in there that you could identify with. Like, oh it, yeah, the guy he, was just this bright light, right? I yeah. mean, right. Yeah, and his joy at at you know delivering happiness, right? You, you can identify with that. Absolutely. Most people, most people like making other people happy. And he found a way to do it in a big, big way. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I was, I was pretty, pretty sad. I, there are a lot of people that I follow online who were actually friends with him. Right. And so sure. were expressing their grief on the Twitters. Um, and it was, it was just as sad. hard to watch that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, so uh, much, so much promise there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, but, but we forget that these are human beings, right? So the money doesn't make them less human, right? The success doesn't, they're flawed just like everybody else is. And, and, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe some of what made them successful also led to their demise. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that there's a correlation in a lot of ways with, you know, people who feel that they, if you grow up feeling less than in some way, feeling uh, up against the wall in some way and feeling like, you know, the only thing you want to do in this world <clears throat> is show people that that you're, you're something, right? You're going to come at some of this stuff a little differently than, you know, maybe somebody with a pretty well-balanced upbringing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, we didn't but, have that motivation. No, and maybe that's good. <laughs> maybe that kept us sane. Yeah, well, like I said, you know, there's, there's different ways of measuring success. Well, right. Anything past paying your bills, right? <laughs> yeah, to, to go to the oxygen model. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.